we are still struggling with the right language to describe the feeling of betrayal by a community member, as well as the external force of these government agencies, these other organizations that are still surveilling us. Hey everyone, welcome to M-Train. I'm Amadal Yekber, I'm your host. And this week, we're going to be addressing issues of mental health in relationship to surveilled communities. So joining me today is Dr. Kamila Rashad. Salaam alaikum, Dr. Rashad. Wa alaikum salam, Ahmed. It's so great to be here with you. So before we get into the topic, why don't you tell the people what you do? I am the founding president of Muslim Wellness Foundation and the Black Muslim Psychology Conference. And through that organization, we focus on really understanding the psychological impact of white supremacy, Christian hegemony, anti-Muslim bigotry, and anti-Blackness as systems of oppression. Um, And through that work, we really enjoy creating space for American Muslims specifically to talk about both the devastation that is felt as a result of those systems of oppression, as well as the ways that we creatively and uniquely define how we want to be seen in the world, how we think about belonging and identity, um, as well as joy and resilience. I am now recently relocated to Chicago, but I have to say that I am Brooklyn born and raised. (laughs) So that Brooklyn will always be my home. I said I have not given up my citizenship. I have just decided to root in a new place and I'm really excited to do so. Did that community in Brooklyn have an influence on this career path? Can you talk a little bit about what brought you into this work? Oh, 100%. I was raised in the community of Imam Suraj Wahaj in Master Taqwa and Bed-Stuy. And so very early on, as a little girl, I can remember just being told bits and pieces of information that I thought growing up was normal, right, for someone of my age to know. So things like, you know, kind of recognizing those individuals who, let's say, were new to the community and there was some wariness or some acknowledgement that their presence signaled what we now know to be surveillance of the community. I remember being told that if there were certain clicks on a phone, that meant someone else was listening. As a psychologist, as someone who, you know, is working in restorative practices, what I've come to realize is that my childhood influenced the kinds of questions that I asked and also influenced the ways that I would seek to understand my my own journey and that of other members of the community as well. Can you talk a little bit also about within, you know, client privilege, some of the people you've worked with on an individual basis as well? Like what, what kind of people come to you? The kinds of individuals and communities that I work with specifically are seeking guidance, advisement, kind of consulting, understanding about the psychological toll, right? The stress, um, the anxiety, depression, really what are the ways that we are consciously, um, subconsciously impacted by all of the, from the slightest microaggressions to the most overt acts of bigotry, being detained, being singled out and targeted, right? Simply because you identify as a Muslim or perceived to be Muslim. And so 
for the individuals that I work with, it's the disentangling, right? One, how do I understand what is happening to me? And what are the ways that I can cope in healthy ways in this work? What is difficult is that surveillance is always happening, right? And we struggle with both honesty and transparency while also wanting to resist, you know, substantiating the most (laughs) egregious stereotypes and misperceptions of Muslims. So... I wonder also, like, what I hear you describe your work, what I'm hearing is a counterpoint to both how Muslims are in a white supremacist society self-perceive themselves, but also the way perhaps the field of mental health, psychology, psychiatry have also maybe pathologized or made Muslims to feel less than. Can you talk a little bit about some of your, specifically with relationship to surveillance, what are the ways you think that your field can do better? If you don't mind, I'd like to use a specific example, and that is my work with The Feeling of Being Watched, the film directed by Asya Bendawi. And it focuses on the experience of surveillance in the Bridgeview, Illinois community. I was brought in in Muslim Wellness Foundation to develop a screening guide, a community screening guide, because what was evident is that Muslim audiences were experiencing vicarious trauma. We had an understanding of the conflict a non-Muslim therapist or someone who isn't culturally competent, who has no understanding of the context in which American Muslims have experienced this country in the last 20 years, do a very poor job of understanding the context and perhaps the individual vulnerability. And so this might lead to sort of misdiagnosis as paranoid, as overly anxious and hypervigilant without cause. So pathologizing the individual too quickly, right, or misdiagnosing them without understanding that if someone says, I literally feel like I'm being watched, that if I go into an airport or even if I'm just simply shopping and I'm going to a halal meat market, that perhaps my license plate is being taken down, right? Someone is tracking my movements. Now, what we've learned after 10 years of NYPD surveillance that wasn't just in the New York community, what we've since learned is that, yes, Hundreds and hundreds of Muslims were being surveilled, suspicionless surveillance, right, of entire communities up and down the East Coast. So the trouble with my field is the lack of awareness of how Islamophobia is tied to white supremacy and Christian hegemony. And many Muslims, not surprisingly, are reluctant to go to a mental health clinic. They're reluctant to talk about what's happening to them individually and collectively because of that lack of understanding. So also just going back to the feeling of being watched movie, which I encourage everyone to watch. Am I hearing you right that people seeing the film, it opened up the possibility that they also were being surveilled that they hadn't considered before. In in a sense, they didn't realize the impact it was having on them until they saw it happening to other people. Is, Is that right? Yes. The screening of that film, when the lights went up, looking at the faces of those in the audience was both equal sadness, outrage, and shock. Seeing on the screen, you know what? I've had a similar thought. I thought maybe I was just going crazy. And I'm so angry. Like, how can this 
continue to happen to us? And am I to believe that it is ongoing, right? This is not about the distant past, but what is currently occurring in our communities across the country. There was a member of the audience who is known to have been an informant at the screening. Oh, wow. This person was sitting in close proximity to me. And the most difficult aspect, I would say, of these encounters is that that informant could be a known member of the community. There's the added complication of the destruction of trust and cohesion within a community that is really feeling the onslaught of discrimination from so many different angles when it sort of is at home, someone that is known, it's such a deep betrayal that many people have a hard time recovering from, but also don't have the space to talk through. And honestly, the work that I've dedicated myself to is creating the spaces and the conversation for us to talk about that betrayal, that loss of trust, that paranoia, that anxiety and stress that is catalyzed by surveillance. What are some of the factors that are preventing access for Muslim communities who have been surveilled, individuals who have been surveilled, individuals who have been traumatized by law enforcement from accessing mental health services, whether they're structural, economic, cultural, religious. The factors that contribute to lack of access, poor understanding of sort of the mental health field in general are related to cultural stigma, but also folks feeling like there hasn't been an acknowledgement in the country of the mental health impact of, let's just say, from 9-11 on. We are still viewed as the perpetrators. And because we're viewed as perpetrators and not as impacted people, there is less empathy for the ways that we uniquely experience 9-11 and the mental health toll that it has taken. So think about, for example, Muslim New Yorkers, right? I'm one of them. For many of us on that day, it was not knowing what was happening. And then when we quickly realized that we would be implicated, right? As a whole, there was fear and anxiety, outrage, but then also this pull to now perform in a way that said, I'm safe, I'm a good Muslim. And in doing that performance, we are not allowed to acknowledge how hurtful it is. The term that's used to describe the grief that we have is unacknowledged grief, that we experience this in such a uniquely devastating way, and that is not recognized. So if someone is going to, say, for instance, a therapist, right, I'm feeling some anxiety, I don't know what it is, I have difficulty sleeping, I'm having headaches, and just all of these aches and pains I don't know why, would a therapist do a detailed enough initial assessment to ask about environmental stressors, to ask about context, to ask about the experience of Islamophobia? And even if we want to go just in the most recent time to the impact of the Trump election, all of that that followed, it, it doesn't happen, not often enough. You mentioned the respectability politics that kind of came out of it, the idea that, like, we want to show that we're good and we don't want to do anything that makes us look bad. And, I, I, you know, I certainly 
will speak anecdotally that I noticed some cultural differences in how that was played out. I know law enforcement approached several immigrants and, you know, some of them either for the reasons of wanting to appear sort of respectful to law enforcement or or to not seem like bad guys would, you know, agree to meetings with law enforcement, agree to meetings with the FBI. Whereas there was a conflict with many black Muslims who felt like you never talk to the police. You should never, ever talk to the police. So I I wonder, you know, it's not necessarily a mental health question, but I I think perhaps you could, you could help us understand how these conversations are evolving, the kind of impacts that those kind of different understandings might have on a community. Absolutely. So the experience and the aftermath and the response to 9-11 definitely differed by community. Many Black Muslims generally were not surprised that the attention would be focused on criminalizing the community. And so Black Muslims were experiencing kind of a deja vu and a disillusionment and at the same time, a disappointment in the lack of acknowledgement of the wisdom that we had gained through these experiences, which would help the entire community navigate what was happening. And so we did see immigrant communities, I think, lean into this aspiration of, well, if we just prove and show that we're good citizens, we're good Americans, this kind of behavior would not happen to us. What we also saw in the response of those communities was a a manifestation of internalized white supremacy, of internalized colonization, such that the response is, well, let me pacify, let me comfort, let me reassure the colonizer, the oppressor, that I am not a threat and that will minimize the damage to my community. What we know is that that doesn't work. (laughs) Um, and Black Muslims are like, we told y'all that don't work, but you didn't listen. Having, you know, several conversations and stories about this over the last year, the betrayal is the word that is used, but it feels like I agree with you that there's a, 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 a missing word almost to explain how complex the impact of not being able to trust your fellow co-religionists, not to be more careful about what you share because you don't know who's listening. This is certainly a change that has happened. We can even see it from the pulpit where khutbahs have become, in some cases and in some studies, seen to be less political over time. I remember when they were very, very political and that is now seen as something that could be marked down. It could be something as something that could be become a story. One other element that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, when we talk about informants and surveillance um, and also the people who are surveilled, I would say maybe this is just my bias speaking, but the prototypical victim and informant is like a young Muslim man. (laughs) And and I'm not saying that women are never informed, but I'm saying certainly that seems to be a type that the government has targeted. And many of the stories that have come out have been about young Muslim men. Can you talk a little bit about how gender plays a role in this? So historically, right, it plays into the idea of the Black criminal, the brown criminal, someone that you should be wary and suspicious of. It's tapping into those tropes. And so it's very easy to draw the line between this Black or brown man is inherently dangerous. And now we're exposing one additional reason why we have to proactively guard against that man. This justifies detainment, incarceration, surveillance, that we're protecting the American public, which should be read as the white Christian public, specifically the white Christian woman, 
against these men who would violate you, who would do harm to your families. We're doing this to protect the public. And it's it's so easy for that propaganda to become very subtle. And so any interest in religiosity and spirituality and one's own identity is then flagged as some kind of indicator of radicalization. Right. I should mention radicalization theory, which is one of the kind of debunked myths that many law enforcement agencies relied on, that there are certain, you know, sort of steps towards being radicalized. And one of which is, of course, increased interest in your religion, which, as you're, as you're arguing, is a very um, kind of natural thing for a young person to understand their relationship to their religion. And then it becomes a marker of suspicion. Even speaking for myself, when I could grow a beard, I started growing a beard because it made me feel more connected to my identity. I mean, it was basic, but that's the truth. And even my family would just say, like, it's not worth the risk. Don't do it. Because not only did they both know that that's how the government saw it, but they were also starting to take a negative view of these things, of these outwardly sort of religious or Muslim identity markers, because... You know, it was kind of a feedback loop, if that makes sense. And that is, I would also say, a manifestation of what we internalize, right, about ourselves because of the propaganda. And I wonder, right, I actually propose that that is the point that I know this might even sound really far left to say, but we have to be able to think about all of these different acts, right, of surveillance, of criminalizing Muslim men, of sort of taking away agency of Muslim women, that all of this constitutes a form of psychological warfare. And the goal of that is to make it so difficult to fray the bonds of trust in a community that organizing is almost impossible, right? If we do not trust one another, we cannot organize. We cannot resist the larger institution, the larger oppression, because we've now internalized the view that, yeah, perhaps he is a threat. Perhaps it's in order to maintain my safety, right, and my livelihood, I have to guard against other members of my community. Those kinds of thoughts that are sort of seeded, right, by policy then becomes a practice. It becomes a part of like almost cultural memory that, yeah, we have to, you know, that young MSA guy who all of a sudden he wants to make prayer and he's growing a beard and he's giving salam and he wants to fast. Like, yeah, yeah he's probably somebody going down the wrong path. I like that productive note, but I wonder if I can ask you also, maybe a slightly strange question, but do we know what makes people turn towards spying on their own community? What do we know about the informant's psychological profile or reasons? The sort of psychological profile of someone who's vulnerable to becoming an informant varies. For some, it was material gain. Right, I'm being paid. For others, it was taking advantage of, again, those existing individual vulnerabilities that might include mental health challenges. It is also someone who might start with good intention and in saying, you know what, I think I'm the perfect person to convince this skeptical public that my community is a threat. Right. I, I want to, you know, grant them sort of an inside look into the community and show them they have nothing to fear. That's well-intentioned and misguided, and it's still something that is manipulated, 
right, by that person who must then continue to justify or ignore the harm that is done. For others, it might be such a strong disconnection from that community itself, right? Like, I have been harmed by this community, and yes, I do believe that they are a threat, and I want to expose that to the world. It could be financial, it could be psychological, it's disillusionment or disconnection from that community of origin. And it is those that, you know, at the outset feel like they're doing it with good intention and to help the community and simply do not recognize that they are being used as a pawn and that their efforts will never exonerate the community because the assumption of guilt is already embedded in sort of the Islamophobic propaganda. That's so interesting. It's one of the most curious things about reporting on this is the different accounts of who the informant was and how they act. And also this idea that you you know that something is kind of wrong, that many of the people who are surveilled can tell. Like maybe they were blindsided, but certain things weren't adding up. And in the back of their mind, they were adding it up. Before we let you go, Let's talk about resources for listeners or community members who feel that they have been impacted by surveillance and they need somebody to talk to. Maybe they're struggling with suicidal ideation. We've heard this from surveilled people. What are your recommendations? Where can people go? My first recommendation is, one, an affirmation that what they believe or what they are experiencing is valid and that they should feel that those experiences that they've gone through are not their fault. That to internalize the blame and the shame exacerbates the sort of the mental health repercussions. And so if someone has been surveilled, has been, you know, profiled in any way, has had direct experience or relationship perhaps with an informant, um, and I want to say even for those who have been sort of entangled, right, in this propaganda and have found themselves, you know, in that place place where they're being pressured to inform their community. I, I want them to understand that there's a history to this, um, that it has happened systemically over the centuries, and now they're finding themselves within this web. You are a member of a minoritized community, right, of a surveilled community, and these are the tactics that are used to crush us. They have not been successful, right? Alhamdulillah, right? We're still pushing back against it, but it does take a toll. Secondly, if there is one person that you can confide in, and I'm speaking directly now to those who have had these experiences, one trusted individual that you can share your thoughts, your feelings, even the sort of the scary images or memories that you're having, identify who that one trusted person is and ask yourself, does this person know when I'm becoming unwell? Some of the difficulty is that we reach for help when we're already in crisis mode. Who is that one person? Talk to them, reach out to them, they're concerned, right? And they're connected to you in a way that lets them know that you might need help, but you're reluctant to do so. Third recommendation I would have is to, you know, think about, and this this goes to kind of like the logistics and the practicality of, you know, thinking about mental health as preventative medicine, right? And not something that we do when we're so burned out, we can barely move. And so thinking about what what do you have access to, whether it's through insurance, through private pay, through free health clinics, think of it as preventative because we're all sort of swimming in this soup, <laughs> this toxic soup of bias and discrimination and oppression. We're all impacted, right? Without exception, 
And if we think about understanding our, preserving our well-being so that we can be stronger as a community, the individual role that we can play is to proactively seek out the care that we deserve. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rashad. Where can people follow you and Muslim Wellness? So first, thank you for inviting me and for being so patient with all of the the chaos that is life at the moment. Um, But you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. I'm Dr. Bamakam on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find Muslim Wellness Foundation as MWF National um, on all social media. We're really excited to relaunch. We have a brand refresh and we're really going to be introducing ourselves again to the community after 10 years of work beginning in June. So you can see all of those updates on MuslimWellness.com or MWF National on social media. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal Yakbar, and produced by Shereen Barghi. It is edited by Kareem Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV and follow me at RadBrownDads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Dawadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit brickartsmedia.org slash bricktv. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening.